Welcome to The Phoenix Files. I'm James Fitzgerald, Senior Reporter for New Model Advisor. Thousands of people were affected by the British Steel Pension Scandal. They were left vulnerable and helpless and unsure of how they'll be able to afford their retirement. In May 2017, Tata, which owned the British Steel Pension Scheme, reached an agreement to move the scheme off its books. This followed a year of talks with the pensions regulator. This meant around 40,000 steel workers had to choose whether to go into the Pension Protection Fund, a new British steel pension scheme, or transfer out of their gold-plated pensions altogether. That's when the trouble started. Throughout this period, a flock of advisors sped down to towns with high concentrations of steel workers, such as Scunthorpe, Teesside and Port Talbot, to advise those steel workers on their options. What followed was a mis-selling frenzy by IFAs which was not helped by poor communication from British Steel, its trustees, and the FCA. About 8,000 steel workers, mainly from Wales, collectively transferred around 2.8 billion from the firm's scheme in 2017, with many of those steel workers' pensions ending up in risky investments, which have either massively lost value or gone bust. The FCA has acted since the scandal came to light, such as initiating enforcement action against many IFAs and closing many more. But many in the industry say its actions were too little, too late. Nearly six years later, the scandal is still ongoing, but there might be light at the end of the tunnel. As only the other month, the FCA finally announced it was proposing a redress scheme to compensate steel workers. But the end of the British steel mis-selling saga, which upended so many working people's lives, still seems a long way off. Over the next four weeks, we'll be taking over the advice show, where I'll be giving you insight into financial advisors, pension experts, and those affected by the British steel pension scheme scandal. I'll be exploring how widely the scandal disrupted people's lives and what is still left to be done about it. Let's begin episode two. Shift manager for British Steel and Teesside, Richard Caddy, talked us through how workers were notified about the option to transfer their pension. Basically, we received a letter um, that was tied on the back of a trustee letter. Uh, just saying, you know, just think carefully if you're looking at a transfer. It's not always the right thing to do. But when you sit with an advisor, um, I know you, you usually see a warning of you may get back less than you put into an investment. Um, I think that's wrote on basically everything now. But then when you sat with an advisor and they're showing you over the last five years, look what this pension's done, 12% that year, 8% that year, 7 you only need to be making 5% a year and, and you'll achieve your goals. Um, in fact, a, a group of reports I've seen from one particular advisor that's that's... I dread to think of the volume that they actually process, but basically every report I've seen, it says typically for a steel worker, uh, they require a critical yield of 8%. So there was nothing even personal in the report. Um, but the FCA, what I suppose, what could there have done more at the time? Obviously, a lot of the problems were created by that they didn't have visibility of, of what was going on. Um, potentially, a solution to get around that would have been that if a firm were making transfers, that transfer, um, we have the technology now, could be recorded and fed back to the FCA. Obviously, they have red flags on it there. If, if somebody's transfer, if your firm is transferring more than 10 clients, that, that would flag a potential issue. But hindsight is a good thing, I suppose. However, for some people, the process wasn't easy. As, as mentioned previously, I've seen some threatening behaviour. Um, members receiving emails saying that the advisor would financially ruin them. 
Um, I have reported a lot of issues. Um, just advisors being deter deterring members. That's one of the big issues. And recently, it's cropping up a little bit more that financial advisors might have family um, connections to the firms, uh, been with them a lot of years, um, and, it, and it's things like that. I think there's about five or six different issues listed in the NAO report which, which specify which is restricting members. And a lot of members that do contact me, they are just scared of the process, really. They, they don't know that they're in fear of... The process itself, that the sort of maybe don't understand that the ombudsman themselves take that a lot of that away because the the member just feels as though they've they're sort of arguing against a financial expert, uh, which the, they're just not savvy with that. Maminul Wahid, associate for Clark Wilmot, understood the difficulties still workers faced when dealing with advisors. I think it comes down to looking at the original motivations around transferring. I don't think, um, well, uh, I know there's a lot of talk about pensions freedoms and, and the impact of pension freedoms on these transfers, but I think um, that loses sight of the unique situation that British Steel Steelworkers were faced in 2016-17 in that um, they there was a lot of uncertainty about the sponsoring employer. There was a lot of uncertainty around changes, the Pension Protection Fund, BSPS2. And many steelworkers, frankly, transferred because they thought that taking control of the pension, taking control of their own destiny in relation to the pension, was the most secure um, thing that they could do. So then trying to get steelworkers to then kind of row back on that and actually question that original decision. They're very proud men and women. So, so trying to get them to question, it's, it's been difficult, it's been a challenge. Um, I guess the other challenge, and it's often something that comes with um, working in the field that I do, is um, having already been let down by professionals, or possibly being let back down by, or perceived to be let down by professionals, trying to um, build trust in professionals again, and the industry can be difficult. So, um, yeah, that, that's another challenge. So I'd probably put it down to... Um, yeah, that really. And, and also, obviously, pensions are complicated. They are incredibly complicated. So and it's often something that <clears throat> is not thought about until many years in the future when it comes to retirement. So the 30 year old that was advised to transfer, his losses probably won't crystallize until he's 60 and looking to access his pension. And only at that point will he realize that actually um, financially will he or she realize that they, they might have been better off having not transferred at age 30 but that won't become apparent until they, they look to access their pension in 30 years' time. Therese Chambers, Director of Consumer Investments at the FCA, explained to me what happened in the early days of the British Steel scandal. I think it was um, fundamentally a time of great confusion and uncertainty for um, steel workers. They were in a situation where they really needed advice. Um, they really needed high-quality, objective, thorough um, and effective advice on what is actually a very difficult and complex question around whether they should transfer out of their defined benefit transfer scheme. Um, and what we have identified is that in a very large proportion of cases, 46% um, of cases, they did not get that good quality, objective and thorough advice. She also had unfortunate examples of how workers were treated. 
So there are definitely some horror stories um, um, around advisors taking full advantage of a situation um, where they could extract quite significant um, financial rewards for themselves through the giving of um, advice to transfer out of a scheme um, in high volumes. We've certainly seen instances of that. Um, but the, the picture um, is um, more nuanced than that, although you know there is that at one end of the spectrum. There's also a, a large number of firms who only gave advice in a handful of cases. Um, so it's really important to differentiate between the high volume um, advice work and the much lower volume advice work. Um, and, you know, we haven't found that every single piece of advice that was given was unsuitable. Um, it's only 46% of the cases. Um, and there is definitely a slant there towards those firms that gave high volumes of advice to transfer out. Therese explained how the FCA tried to tackle the issue in the early days of the scandal. Pension Freedoms came in in 2015 um, and we recognised straight away the potential for harm um, that that brought. Um, most individuals' single biggest asset is their pension fund um, and so that obviously provides um, opportunities uh, for wrongdoers. And we actually began our supervisory um, information gathering um, in October 2015. We did it in phases. Um, in our first phase we looked at a very small sample of firms to, see, to try and diagnose um, how things were going um, with this new, um, these new freedoms and the new advice regime. Um, we saw enough to give us cause for concern. So in the second phase, um, we um, broadened that out. So um, that's in December 2016. We, we started our second phase. And frankly, the more we looked, the more concerned we became. Um, we were looking broadly across the entirety of the defined benefit um, advice market. We weren't looking specifically at British Steel because intelligence did not start to come our way that there was a problem that was specific to British Steel um, until um, the latter part of 2017. Um, and at that point, we really stepped up our efforts. She explained contingent charging and the conflict of interest it caused. I don't think we'll ever know the answer. Contingent charging provided a route um, by which advisors would get paid for their advice, but there's there's no scenario in which that advice is ever going to be given for free. Um, and even you know, since we've now banned contingent charging, um, but you know, to be fair to advisors, there's an awful lot of work that goes into preparing a recommendation, looking at someone's defined benefit um, transfer, and it's fair that they are remunerated um, for it. Um, so we, we decided to ban contingent charging because it was an obvious conflict of interest. Um, but, uh, you know, that it's very difficult to exclude conflicts of interest fully. Gareth Thatchett, FSL legal solicitor and notary public partner and lawyer for the British Steel Advisor Group, explains why the group of advisors he is representing are still concerned about the advice they gave to steel workers five years later. The group is about 110 or so members, yeah? And bearing in mind... We think, because obviously you can't get the raw data out of the FCA for love nor money, but we think there's about 150 firms out of the 300 or so that are materially exposed. And of that 150, there's some outliers, people, we just don't know who they are. But there's quite a, a, a decent number of firms that have gone bust, probably 20, 25 or so, that you can see on the FSCS's default list. So if you add all that together, I think we've got the vast majority of firms that are materially exposed. Um, so, you know, it's, it, we are in a good position to represent the views of that group. He spoke about who the FCA should target. I, I think they they will have to they will have to focus on every firm 
with a British Steel transfer because it would be strange if you had four and you had no oversight. But if you had five, you had lots of oversight. That would make no sense and would certainly be challengeable. And it would just would. I don't think it would roll out like that. But but the firms and we know quite a few firms with like one or two where they're not sat in South Wales or South Yorkshire. You know, they've got a client who's a brother of a steel worker who they've done one or you know one or two transfers for that kind of thing. Um, they, these firms will still have to go through the same redress process, but I think the SCA think, um, or that's at least my perception, that these firms won't collapse under the weight of the redress scheme and will survive it. Whereas I think those with five or more, the vast majority because of lack of capital or lack of insurance, are probably more than likely destined to go to the FSCS. He's concerned about how many firms could become liquidated as a result of British steel transfers and the potential introduction of a redress scheme. When the SCA decided in 2017 in December that they needed to do something and they were being criticised for being behind the curve, they then built a system which is DBAT and DBAT has been used to justify this approach. And if you say to yourself, well, OK, the, the SCA are entitled to do these kind of things, they, they should do them in a transparent manner. And bearing in mind the last time they proposed a Section 404 scheme, which was to do with interest rate hedging, they got they were heavily criticised for not being transparent in the way they did it. Um, and of course, they'd learn lessons. But the same is about the same process and the same history is about to repeat itself because a DBAT, not one single firm that's given any British Steel advice has ever seen an FCA DBAT. So that, you know, that's quite shocking, really, because, I mean, the regulator acts effectively as prosecutor, judge and jury for um, these firms and can, and can put them all out of business, but isn't prepared to disclose the data upon which it does so. It, it refers to it, but no one's ever seen it. So I think you can see why challenges will come, because um, it's unacceptable that the FCA sit on the data. Any firm that's given unsuitable advice would have to redress the BSPS member to the best they could. Nobody's arguing about that. I think that's one thing. I think um, the perception of firms that are not or have not given this advice is that these are bad firms. But this is just not true. Um, you know, the, it's a it's a good spin to suggest that you know they these are fly by night advisors. But it's not a fair spin because it's just simply wrong. And if you're standing outside looking in, you wouldn't be too interested with the way in which DBAT works because it doesn't affect you. But if you were inside and looking at it, you think, wait a minute, this is just very similar. We think it's very similar to the way the post office handled its horizon system when it uh, went after sub-postmasters and sub-postmistresses. We, we take the view that the SCA's lack of transparency will effectively in the end be its undoing because a court at some point will order that those DBATs are reviewed. And when they are reviewed, then the firms inevitably will challenge the basis of them because if it was right that that level of unsuitability occurred, of the 7,700 or so transfers, you'd have 7,500 complaints with false, and we just haven't. Thank you for listening to the second episode. Once again, if you want to get in touch about anything we've spoken about, please contact me at jfitzgerald at citywire.co.uk. We'll see you next week for episode three.